Welcome to our 2023 draft recap episode. Usually at this time of the year, we do a highly requested mock draft episode, but instead, this show will recap all of our high money and expert league drafts and auctions. The focus will be on pre-draft strategy, in-draft tactics, what to look for, a guide on how to plan your upcoming drafts. We'll cover 12-team versus 15-team, point leagues versus roto leagues, snake draft versus auction, slow versus real-time, online drafting versus in-person. We'll cover all the formats with guidance and differences for each, with player discussions embedded throughout, great nuggets of information, and of course, Ruvain's injury report at the end. 2022 NFBC Auction Championship winner Steve Casolino joins this strategy-rich show next on Beat the Shift. And welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm back to being hoarse again. It was getting better. A uh, lot of drafting, a lot of talking in the auction, auctioneering, buying. So I guess uh, I guess that got me after a long weekend of tout wars. Otherwise, I'm doing pretty good. World Baseball Classic. Well, oh my God! Did you see that game last night? Japan, Mexico. That was some game. That was that was a great game. And today's game, it's going on now. The championship. It's just crazy to see the two main pitchers so far for Team USA, coming from the Diamondbacks and coming from the Rockies. Two teams that almost nobody drafts pitchers from. Yeah, the thing is that you know I think the concern is playing pitchers. And playing pitchers, you know, you can't really have length. You can't have pitchers as they are. So this is not a real representation, being that it's in spring training. All the more reason to have this kind of thing, which, by the way, is so popular and so entertaining. Uh, I would love to see this happen, like, once every three years instead of the All-Star game. Well, they actually they actually just announced it, that it's going to be every three years. Next year's going to be in 2026. Yeah, well, I like to have in the middle of the season, instead of the All-Star break, have this for, like, a two-week tournament. And, and do it then so pitchers can be as is and everyone can be up to speed and it could be a real game, you know? I, I guess, but the risk of injury is higher, I think, in the middle of the season because people are going to push themselves more. But you never know. Well, uh, again, uh, I apologize for the little bit raspy voice, but hopefully we have good information. Today is our draft recap episode. Um, we're going to go through a bunch of our teams that we've drafted and auctioned over the past couple of weeks. Um, and the idea is not to show, oh, I love my team. I did a good job. No, the idea is to give this strategy because we've been talking strategy for you know, almost three months now as to what we're going to do. I'm going to show you what we actually did, and we'll talk about you know, what went right, what went wrong, and hopefully you'll get something for your draft this coming week uh, so you can do it. We're going to be doing a recap of some snake drafts, auctions, 12-team, 15-team, roto, points, playoffs, uh, slow draft. You know, so we have a lot of combinations of different things, so you'll get some good uh, just out of everything. And with us to help that is none other than the 2022 NFBC Auction Championship winner. Welcome to the show, Steve Cosolino. How are you, Steve? Hey, guys. Hi, Ravane. Hi, Ariel. Thanks. 
I appreciate you guys having me on, and I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, excited to continue drafting. It's been a fun past two weeks with all the drafts in the books, and uh, I love drafting with you guys and talking about them. So thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Steve is in uh, two leagues of ours, including an NFBC auction that we did this past Friday uh, in the city that we'll talk about. He's also in a league called the Gotham Diamond District League, uh, GDD, that actually the three of us are in together as separate teams. I partner with Derek Carty in that league. Uh, and uh, we all do TGFBI in our own separate league. So uh, let's really, let's get right to it, and let's let's go through some of our teams. We're not going to go pick by, pick by pick, but we're going to talk general strategy, some good picks, and a couple of notes uh, on each uh, to talk. So let, let's start with you, Steve. Uh, let's talk about TGFBI. TGFBI, the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, as most of you who listen know, is uh, Justin Mason has created this uh, a couple years ago. He invites pretty much anybody in the industry who produces some content, either who does it for a living or you know just d does a podcast or just writes an article here and there. Somebody who's creating content uh, is eligible, and there's almost 400 or so uh, players into I don't know, about 29 different leagues. Uh, with all the same format, NFBC standard format, we're all competing for an overall contest. So there's a league winner, an overall winner, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, Ruvain did really well in it. His second year, uh, he finished in second place. Um, so you know we're, we definitely have experience with it. The format is it's a slow draft. So we each get four hours to make picks. You can think a little bit. Uh, and that started somewhere in the end of February. So starting with you, Steve. You know, what is your general strategy that you try to employ in TGFBI? This is such a broad question, but, but I'll start with that with you. Sure. Uh, up front, I always like to get power and speed, power speed bats. Uh, that's an important combo with the first few picks. And my first five picks, I at least want to have uh, get an anchor for a closer because there's not many of them. And then two aces or soft aces, you know, second tier aces, along with a couple bats uh, that, again, have a nice blend of power and speed. Uh, and then the second part of the draft, I mean, typically in the back end of the draft, I, I like to go for upside uh, because it is a fab league. So I can uh, backfill those spots if they don't work out. Um, but overall, throughout the draft, I try to get a lot of uh, balance, uh, especially when it comes to speed. I don't go for rabbits. I tend to go for guys who will chip in, you know, chip in uh, five to ten stolen bases each. Uh, that's typically my strategy. All right, Ruvain, what about you? Anything to add for the general strategy? Yeah, general strategy. I did exactly what I've been preaching the entire preseason. I go for value up top, try to get as many value players as possible, especially the hitters. I tried to wait as long as possible to get a closer because I don't like picking closer and didn't want it in the second or third or even fourth round. I actually got my anchor in the fourth round. I got hit when hitter, hitter, hitter starting pitcher, relief pitcher, and then toward the end of the draft, I'm just looking for value, trying to find spots where I have holes in my offense, and then wherever I noticed that I was going weak toward the end of the draft, I said, oh, wait, I, I have a weakness in outfield or something like that, then I'll try to throw in, uh, you know, late outfield picks that have some upside that you never know they may hit. So uh, I'll give you a couple of points of strategy that I had. Well, first of all, I'm a value drafter. So, you know, I'm looking for highest value if it's there, unless there's a good category balance. Like every pick is either high value pick or uh, a category balancer. Um, I try to avoid risk, point number two. Um, I don't like picking risk, especially early on. So uh, you won't see me taking any of that. I did notice that shortstop is pretty deep up top. So I did not feel the need to push a shortstop at all. 
Uh, I took a shortstop, first shortstop, round eight. I didn't need to push something any further than that. Uh, corner infield, I saw a hot spot somewhere around ten to eleven, uh, nine to eleven, let's say. Uh, so I didn't need to push anything up there, other than I did have the strategy of I was thinking about taking Vladimir Guerrero Jr. early for stability. Even though he's a first baseman, but he adds so much power and batting average that I thought was going to needed to be a, he was a, the ability to be a rock this year. Um, where I picked, so I was thinking about that. I did pick Vlad. Uh, it was part of the strategy. Um, second base, I do notice that second base is very wide at the bottom, meaning there's a lot of similar people at at the one to five dollar mark, let's say. Uh, so I did not have to press second base at all. Unless the value came to me, I was fine with waiting there. Those were the basic strategy points I had, and you just draft value, value, value. Steve, did you have a KDS, Kentucky Derby-style uh, um, preference for this? Originally, I had I was targeting the back end, towards the back end. I don't like being at the end, e- either end. I don't like being at the turn, uh, but I do because you can miss runs pretty easily that way. And it's a long wait between picks. So I uh, I was going to originally go 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 in the back end there. And then 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 was my setting. And mainly because I targeted um, Jordan Alvarez. I was wanting him at the 8 or 9 slot. But that was before the news came out about his hand. And when I heard that, I said, well, that's coming from October. And I even wonder, like, Ruvain, what do you think of that? To me, that feels and sounds chronic or something that's long-term, so I, I'm staying away from him now. So that changes my opinion of uh, the 8-9 slot. Yeah, well, that's exactly. I wanted the 8 spot also. I, I bet 8 is my number one, and I wasn't targeting Jordan because I didn't want him because of the fact of that hand injury. That's, a, that's an injury that's been lingering since last year. He did play through it a little bit, but the fact that it's already March 21st and he hasn't played in the game yet, that's a little bit concerning to pick someone that or pick someone in the, with the 8th overall pick in your draft to have as your anchor. So like Ariel, I picked... Vlad Jr. as my number eight, I had number eight pick, and we picked the same first pick. But it's a second round where things got, where things started changing up a little bit, um, and it's based on, you know, we have to see how the drafts go because my draft is going to be completely different from your draft, and you have to be able to find the right balance and figure out balance um, risk with injury. And when it comes to going number eight with, with a possible Jordan Alvarez who hasn't even played yet, I, I just wanted to stay away from him. Yeah, Steve, I had the exact same uh, strategy for KDS. 8, 9, 10, and then, you know, six, five, five, four, three. I did not like the ends, and, and I've talked about that on the show plenty. But, yes, I had the same strategy. And, yes, uh, a yard done was a possibility until we heard about the hand. Uh, I would shift, as you, the KDS a little bit later, but still a preference towards the middle rather than the ends. Did you have a specific first four-round strategy, Steve, uh, in your draft you took Betts Riley, and then you actually had a pitcher run where you took Strider Radon and then a closer Presley. Was that your general strategy? Hitter, hitter, pitcher, pitcher, save, something like that in the first five? Exactly. And I'd start with the, it's the first five. That fifth round, by the fifth round, as I mentioned, I wanted my closer, uh, you know, basically a $20 closer and up. So that first tier of closers in my mind and presley was at the end of that tier so that worked out perfectly um i felt like helsley was the end of that tier but he got picked right uh, before the pick came to me and then uh yeah the two 
Starters, I wasn't planning on Strider and Rodon. Since this is a fab league again, I decided to take a bit more risk. Usually I don't. And also this is not a money league. So in a uh, $1,500 auction championship, no, I'm not going to uh, draft Carlos Rodon, even before he was uh, came up with the injury. Uh, Strider as well. Uh, he just feels a bit too risky for me in a, a higher stakes league. But since this is more for fun, um, you know, I, I thought those were good. There were value that fell to me, Strider and Rodon. So I took it there, took them there. And Riley in the second round, that was an easy pick for me because, uh, you know, he's pe not even peaking yet. He's a young bat, and he's got 35-plus power in that bat. Yeah, you guys got lucky in the second round. You got to take Riley. Uh, Riley was taken before me. You guys had... I'm not going to say an easier draft, but uh, okay. I, I sort of I sort of liked the decision making available to you guys more than me. I struggled a little bit early on. Um, my, I, I took JT Real Muto in the second round. Um, I thought that was a good value for him. I was contemplating even taking Edwin Diaz in the second round. I I I was happy to get him in the third round. Now I'm sad that I got him. Obviously, with him being out, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, Ruvain, let's go to you on this. How did you handle saves? Or what was the, what was the plan, and how did you execute it? My plan was to try to get saves somewhere in the first couple of rounds, but I tried to avoid second, third, fourth round because I don't want to overpay for the closer. Now you mentioned that you got Real Muto in the second round. He fell to me in the third round. That's where I really wanted to get my starting pitcher. So because of that, my whole draft got pushed back a little bit. I went for the starting pitcher in the fourth round, and I ended up getting Ryan Helsley at the end of that tier in the fifth round, which it, it, it couldn't have worked out any better. That was a top of that was for for me, that was the end of that tier. And because it fell to me, that was perfect. And what I did was toward the end of the draft, because I have Helsley, I actually picked up Giovanni Gallegos later on in the 20th round just as a backup just to make sure because you never know he'll start splitting saves or or if God forbid he gets hurt like Diaz did you never know so I, I always wanted that I, that's a, I think it's a good handcuff because Gallegos will give you good numbers he'll give you good peripherals even if you don't have the saves from him you'll get good numbers from him and then I also went with I went some with some darts I got Sir Anthony Dominguez I also went with Jonathan Weizaga you never know things happen so I just threw those guys out out and I just again I didn't reach for these guys they were there I thought the values were good where I got them and I don't like to have to reach above the value because I think I'm going to lose value in those areas if I don't if I just try to keep reaching for saves so Steve you got a solid lockdown Ryan Presley in the fifth round then you really didn't take a closer you sort of took I guess Giovanni Gallegos was your a closer dart in the 19th really and Rafael Montero in the 23rd but you really didn't look for guys who are top-line closers, middle-line closers, even third-tier closers. Was that the plan? Yes, you know, similar to Ravain. And I, I take it a bit more of an extreme this year because I think there's so much uncertainty on the back end of uh, these closers, those back, those late tiers. There's just so much uncertainty. And, you know, last year I did win the overall auction championship, and I only had, I think it was 56 saves. Uh, so you don't, you can be mid mid of that pack, even for the overall uh, in placing of save save. So I think, you know, my goal was targeting, you know, 55, 65 saves. So if you get uh, a horse like Presley, Helsley, or any of the top closers, you know, 30, 35 saves easy. And then I just want to look for about 20 more saves. So if, you know, Montero can chip in with 10 to 15, Gallegos another 10, and then I threw a flyer on Jimmy Herget. I'm just looking for 20, 25 more saves in the, in the draft just to get me going, and then I'll pick some more up along the way in fab. 
Yeah, I had a special feeling about Diaz because Diaz, you know, just so locked down and all those strikeouts. I mean, it's the ratios and strikeouts that really give him, you know, an edge above all the other closers. Uh, I went with him, and then the plan was to get a, uh, you know, just somebody down there. I, I got Alex Lang in the 13th, just somebody who gets some, some, you know, some saves. And I went with El- Evan Phillips, who maybe he's the closer, but it'll give me ratios. Uh, and then I went with a couple of shots later. I took Kendall Grave in the 25th. I took Michael Fulmer in the 27th. So, you know, I was... A third tier closer, a top tier closer, and a couple of shots is how I how I picked it. That was the plan, and I did execute that. I also I also picked up Duran in the tenth round. So I I wanted to, I didn't you don't need to get a second full closer. Steve, exactly what you're saying. You don't need a second full closer, but if you can get a couple of half closers that help with the ratios for that second closer, you should be okay. I like I like that Fulmer pick late. I thought that Fulmer pick late uh, was a really nice Ariel. So good gamble there. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I I think Duran is another good option. If you get like if you had Duran and another, uh, even like an Alex Lang or one of those you know low tier closers, you get a little bit of saves with Lang. You get the ratios with Duran, and so on and so forth. That's uh, a good way to pair. Let's talk speed. My feeling is that with the new bases and new increase in speed that there is absolutely no reason to over-prioritize speed. That's not to say that you should not walk out of the first couple of rounds with some speed. I think that you do have to be conscious of getting it. There still is a dearth of speed, but you don't have to be over-aggressive and push over players. So, you know, wherever your values calculate the players should be, to me, that's where you should be taking them, whereas last year people were just pushing them up. I didn't. I got Vladimir Guerrero in the first round, so I knew I had to get somebody with some speed. JT Ramuto actually gives some speed, so I thought I was okay out of the first two rounds. Probably was a little bit light on speed over on power, so Cedric Mullins in the fourth, to me, was the perfect guy to balance, and I got him. And later I, in the seventh round, I thought way after his value, I got Stalling Marte. I usually don't like getting players who are very similar in profile. Mullins and Marte are, but they perfectly balanced Guerrero and Real Muto. Um, so that was the plan for me with speed. And then just, you know, get a little bit of speed contributors here and there as we go. Steve, you did talk about speed already. Anything to add, Ruvain? Yeah, what I did was I don't like paying for speed just like I don't I like paying for saves early on. So what I what I did was I I had uh, Vlad as my first one. Devers will give you maybe a handful. I got JT Ramuto also give you a handful. Then I took pitcher pitcher. Then I saw I was a little I had plenty of power. So that's when I I saw at a perfect value was Tommy Edmond. Great, I got speed there. Then I went Tyler O'Neill get a little bit of speed there. Then I waited and waited and waited, and I didn't get a shortstop. Ariel, you said you, you you would wait also. I waited all the way until the 21st and 22nd round to get my shortstops. I got Luis Garcia, who's just a blend of everything and who's a value there, but I got my 22nd round, Jorge Mateo, another guy for speed. I felt that I didn't have to pay for those guys. They got starting gigs, so I don't have to worry about that too much, and I have my speed on my team in case I need to insert it anytime I need to. Yeah. Um, Steve, did you have a plan for catchers? I know some people are like punt catchers. Some people like just get just get any. Some people push at the top. Did you have a specific catcher deal or just wherever the value was? 
Well, it is about values you mentioned, but for me, you know, I used to go with inexpensive catchers and I always think of this as a, I just can't help it, but I'm an auction drafter, right? So I keep thinking of it in auction values, but this year I was really targeting, there were so many good solid middle value catchers. So between like Wilson Contreras and down to like Sean Murphy, that bunch of like 12 to $15 catchers, if you will, I wanted one from that tier and then a second catcher uh, from say the two to $5, $6 tier starting with Danny Jansen and then, or Cabo Ruiz, Moreno, Jonah Heim. Those are the type of, uh, that was the type of strategy I was looking at for catcher. And that's really reflected in, in my auction drafts. Yeah. I generally do the same thing. Uh, to me though, uh, you know, I push also towards where I think the value is And auctions are different than snakes. Uh, here you sort of just have to see, uh, you know, where the drop-offs are. Oh, is there a big drop-off? If you don't take this catcher to the next one, then it's time to push catcher. I look for the drop-offs. I call it re replacement-level drafting. If you see there's a big drop-off, time to take the catcher. If the drop-off is bigger than a different position, time to take the catcher. If it's pretty similar, it's not. And and and, and the way my draft went is my second catcher happened to be the highest value on the board. I got I ended up getting um, Travis Darno. What round was this? I got Travis Darno in the 15th round. And he happened to be the highest value on my board. And I'm thinking, why would I not take it if it's the highest value on the board, even though he's a catcher? So what, he's your second catcher? I think, Ari, you took your second catcher. I think it was like a $1 catcher toward the very end. I usually try to do that also. But if the values are there, I don't want to leave them on the board just because they're a catcher. Yeah, I don't specifically go after the catchers. It's, it's whether if they're somewhere towards the top of the board, sure. And, of course, if you valued your players correctly, you should be indifferent on position, right? Uh, you know, if an $8 shortstop is worth the same as an $8 catcher, as long as you value it correctly, right? If you do the math, then you should be indifferent, all things being equal. Let's just uh, go over any of uh, – um, what were some of the easiest decisions that you made during the draft? Uh, start with you, Steve. For me, it really, I mentioned these already, but it was really in the second round, Austin Riley was an easy pick there because it's such a drop off at third base. And like I said, he's easy 35 home runs in the bank. He's even up to, um, you know, 40 home runs, um, home run hitter. And then again, the fifth round, since Helsley was already drafted, Presley was the end of that tier of, uh, you know, anchor closers. So I got my anchor there. Um, those are really by far my easiest picks i think in the middle there well by the 10th round all the first basemen were gone i waited too long for first baseman so and, and my targets were either christian walker or rowdy telez like the 11th 12th round but they got bumped up around each and sure enough i had telez there at the end of that tier and he got picked right before it came to me my turn in round 10 so that was an easy pick for me i went with cj crone who i don't love and, and he was not on my draft list but he was at the end of that tier and i felt like i needed uh, a, a bit of safety there and, and at least he's going to give you some solid numbers across the board yeah i actually did the same thing round 10 cj crone telez and walker were taken and so i bumped and i got cj crone same as you hey great minds think alike right ariel <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. If you well, <laughs> you won the auction ch championship last year, so <laughs> hopefully I have the same instinct this year. Um, well, this, this is draft though, but uh, in any case, uh, I agree with that decision. Um, my easiest decisions, uh, as I mentioned before, Edwin Diaz round three. I was contemplating round two, so that was easy. Uh, Nick Castellanos, I got him in round nine. I have a nice value for him, and he was just easily the best value on the board. So that was good. Javier Baez in the twelfth. I don't love Javier Baez, but 12th round? That sounds good to me. Uh, and Patrick Sandoval in the 14th round. 
I needed a pitcher at that point. He has upside. He has value, innings, strikeouts. Uh, I, I thought that was the right time to take him. How about you? Easiest decisions, Ruvain? Easiest decision was JT Ramuto in the th- middle of the third round, and he fell to me. I mean, how can I not take that? that was, that's very easy. And then the easiest decision that was made for me was the fact that there was an 11-pitcher run in the f- in the third to fourth round with all the starting pitchers and a bunch of re- and a bunch of relievers going also. So this is when I said, you know what? If I don't get my starter here, then I'm not going to get a starter that I really want. So I ended. That's when I picked up Sh- Shane Bieber. So actually, that decision was made for me just based on how the draft was going. Yeah, I was going to add a couple of other easy, easy decisions. Framber Valdez, round six. That was a slam dunk. I mentioned Starling Marte. And uh, David Peterson, uh, the, they announced Quintana Hurt somewhere right before that pick. Round 23, I got David Peterson. He was the next guy there. I'm like, oh, my goodness. He's going to be a starter. He's really good. So I got, I got a nice, very late David Peterson. Any tough decisions you had to make and what your thought process was, Steve? Well, usually the tough decisions come towards the back end of the draft. Um, you know, how much risk in, uh, versus upside I want to take, um, you know, and, and who's going to be drafted. Because, you know, a lot of people are thinking the same thing. So in the back end of the draft, that's when people start snagging guys earlier, uh, you know, than expected. Uh, I was able to get Jamison Tyone in the 18th round. So I was happy about that because he was one of my targets. But, you know, tough decisions a lot of them get it gets more and more difficult i think as the draft progresses and so to find speed late to find a little bit of power late so i gambled it with adam duval in the 20th round uh jose siri in the 22nd for uh, added speed i figured that was a good risk um, to take so those are really my tougher decisions at the end of the day anyone for you Uwe? Yeah, at the end of the draft, I wanted to get pitchers that had that can give me some length. They can give me some that are the, the horses. And I was looking at the, my board, and there weren't really many pitchers out there that I loved toward the end there. Um, I ended up getting Adam Wainwright in the 24th round. Yes, he was like a gazillion years old, but he threw almost 200 innings last year. So that's something that I'm pretty comfortable with, especially because with that, I was able to take Bailey over with a little bit of an injury risk later on because who knows, maybe he'll get a bunch of innings also. I also wanted to get, it was very hard, I wanted to get someone with multiple position eligibility toward the end of the draft. And I was looking, I was looking, I couldn't find anyone, and then all of a sudden, Joey Wendell fell into my lap. And that was the perfect guy that I wanted, and I, I just needed him to get to me, and I was praying, don't, don't, don't get sniped, don't get sniped, don't get sniped, and he ended up falling to me. So I got a little bit lucky there, but if he didn't fall to me, then I would have had a bigger problem. Yeah. Um, I tried to get Wendell in a lot of drafts and auctions, but I kept getting sniped on him. Uh, very good. Good for position eligibility and gives you a little bit of everything. All right, so that's TGFBI. I want to spend a little time on labor. I'm the only guy who participated in it. Uh, I It was the labor mixed auction it, two weeks ago in Florida. Actually, Steve, you were there for it, actually, right? Yes, yes. Had a blast in uh, at First Pitch Florida with you guys. And I'm usually I'm I'm usually there drafting with you. So this is the first time we did labor separately. So then you know it's me time to asking you the questions because basically usually we do it as a team. And I want to know your thought process how you went through the labor because it is it is a, a short a smaller t- league. It's a twelve team mixed auction. Um, did knowing the players in the league the participants did you know how to plan your draft based on who was sitting at the table or just based on talking to them before the draft? Yeah, so that's one thing I do that, that I preach, and you've heard me that I actually try to research as much as I can who is in the draft and how they work. 
maybe a hitter pitcher split that looks odd, maybe some interesting targets. Like, for example, Ryan Hallam, he's a Cardinals fan. He gets Paul Goldschmidt like everywhere. Guess who he got this draft? He got Paul Goldschmidt. You know, so you know that you're not going to get Paul Goldschmidt if you're sitting in a room with Ryan Hallam. Uh, if you know, you can know certain players. You also know where certain players play. I know that you know Doug Anderson plays a lot of guys at the top. Aaron Judge. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to be in on those guys because he was going to be scooped up. Um, I know that uh, Adam Ronis, who is in the league, he also tr tries to go for top guys. He didn't in this draft, but I know he likes the speed guys at the top. He got Bichette in a Rosarina. Um, there was a lot of new people in the league, so I couldn't figure out everything. Uh, Nick Pollock was in the league. I know Nick likes to just go a little bit cheap on pitchers because he thinks he can you know, fly with it, and he likes to buy some big hitters. He bought Matt Olson, Mike Trout, um, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, scouting is a big thing to know who to stay away from. When we talk about the Tout Wars, you'll see that more that, that really helped. But, yes, that is a part of my draft prep. Ariel, I know you were happy with your draft and very pleased because we spoke about it at length afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought I got a lot of value. So the, the biggest strength that I had was, you know, well, first of all, going in, the whole strategy in doing these auctions is knowing where those hot spots are. I know we talk about it, but the way you see it is you see what positions you know you can take haircuts on. So I saw that the corner infield, that there were just so many bargains to be gotten. I thought that the market was underpricing a lot of these. So I didn't feel the need to overspend for any corners, and I ended up with a $6 Ryan Mountcastle, which is insane, a $6 Ryan McMahon, which is excellent, and an $8 Christian Walker, which is fantastic. There's so much value in that, and I knew I would get that, so I didn't feel the need to overspend. Now, if Freddie Freeman would have come up a reasonable price. I, you know I love Freddie Freeman. Sure, but he went for 36. I didn't have to push it. Unlike catcher, there wasn't much of a, an undercut there. Players were going roughly at value. So if I wanted to spend a little bit more, more money on offense and not make sure that I don't you know, leave money on the table, I said I'm going to get at least one very good catcher. I happen to like the price for Real Muto. I spent 23 on Real Muto. In the outfield, I know there's bargains in the teams. That's where I see it. There's always some bargains late, but there's teams. So I got a $16 Tyler O'Neill, $14 Jake McCarthy, $9 Brandon Nimmo before he got hurt, which was a good one, $8 Anthony Santander. I'm getting guys at $5 below prices because I know where the hot spots are. Now, if any player comes up in the, in early that's close to value, I take it. For example, Jose Altuve, I got him for 24 This is before he got injured, of course. Um, Jose Altuve, close to price? Sure, I'm going to snag that. You snag anybody high that's a, within a dollar, and then you wait on the spots that you know are the hot spots, and that's how you play it. Now, speaking of that, your most expensive player is Shohei Otani, which you've never done before. I know that because we draft a lot. We've never done before. Now, before I ask you why you did that, Steve, have you ever targeted Otani in any of your drafts ever? Uh, no, I've never owned him in any of my drafts is it because of his risk or do you just don't feel comfortable at his price i think it's a combination of risk i, I will say this uh, in the dcs uh the draft and hold uh that I'm, I'm doing now those drafts he's great at because to have him as a pitcher or a hitter to have that flexibility in a non-fab league that's nice you know a nice option and flexibility to have and these other leagues where you, you you know week to week you do your roster management 
I don't, I don't see the value there as much. Daily league, totally different story, right? So it really depends on the setting of the league um, and, and, and how, you know, rosters are managed. So, yeah, I would I stay away from him in these uh, weekly transaction leagues and uh, the weekly leagues where you set your rosters. So, Ariel, why did you go after him then? Well, I didn't go after him, but my value sheet had about $33 for Otani. In this league, Otani is one player can play either hitter or pitcher. So very valuable there. Um, and even with a risk discount, it takes him to 30 So $26, and I can use him as a hitter or a pitcher. He's a substantial pitcher also. Uh, on weeks where, you know, to start, very good matchups, uh, why not? And otherwise, he's a fantastic hitter. Uh, $26 was just fa- great. So instead of paying for a $30-plus outfielder, Shohei Otani is a first-round player. I got him at 26. I couldn't walk away. You, you just can't walk away from that much value, and that's why I got him. Agreed. I would even have paid that. Yeah, I would have paid that for him too. Yeah, that's 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 cheap. So you actually got him, quote-unquote, cheap for what he could be, actually be worth. Now, what did you do with saves? I saw you drafted Diaz again. I think it looks like you're very high on Diaz. What was your st- save strategy going into the going into the labor draft? <laughs> so, so, by the way, I'm, I'm getting killed in this league because I have Diaz. I have also have Jose Altuve and Nimmo. Nimmo, I'm not worried about, but uh, oh goodness. Uh, the the nice thing though in TGFBI, you lose Diaz. That's it. He's a drop. In this league, at least you get Fab reclaim. So the the money that I spent on Diaz, the twenty one dollars, at least I get twenty one dollars out of a hundred back in Fab. So everyone starts the year with a hundred. I start with one hundred twenty one. So at least I get that. Oh, the, the deal again was get a top closer. I like the price, twenty one Edwin Diaz. That was that was enormous. Uh, you know, closers sometimes. You know, other leagues Edwin Diaz has been going 23, 24. Now, I know it's a twelve team league, but still there aren't that many solid closers. Uh, and then the rest of the way, I got some middle ones. I got Johan Duran for just six dollars, Andres Munoz for just four dollars, and I got Jason Adam for a dollar just to fill in uh, some more. Ratios and maybe a th- couple saves here and there, but I just went, you know, with cheap cheap values of middle guys. Being that I got the one top Diaz after that. Well, that's a question for you, Ariel. You know, what the question is: How do you pull off so many values, top to bottom? I mean, you n- named them all. I mean, basically, you didn't mention Max Fried, and that's still a few dollars of value there. Drew Rasmussen, like you mentioned, Diaz is a twenty-five dollar pitcher, and Otani is a steal at that price, and and the other. All the other hitters you mentioned. I mean, there's not one player here that's not below that you paid below value for. It's uh, how how do you pull that off? <laughs> Pretty good, right? Um, yeah, yeah, I'm patience, patience, it's, patience. It's it's patience, but it's also knowing when to strike. Um, when you have guys, I mean, look, an auction is a zero sum game. If you calculate your dollars and everybody adds up to 260 times 12, the 3120, whatever it is. Um, if anybody goes $5 over, by math, there has to be somebody who's available $5 under. For every, you know, for every, every time somebody is, is bought at a loss, there's got to be somebody at a profit somewhere. So, you know, you have to be patient in that. And what happens is you, get, you have guys going in the 40s. There's in a 12-team league, you know, there shouldn't be guys well over $40. When you have people spending that much, they can't play the middle, right? If, if, if you're playing in the $40 range, you buy a $40 player and a $35 player, 
you're not playing in the middle teens. You're not playing in the, in the 20s. You're playing low low dollars. You're going to get a couple of dollar picks. That's how you're spreading your team. So because there are fewer teams, the more teams that do that, there are fewer teams playing the middle. And when there's fewer teams playing the middle, there's just more opportunity when the prices now go under, right, because they overinflate on top. They're over, overvalued. There's got to be bargains in the middle. When you have fewer players playing like that, you know you're going to grab it. So you have to see early on how high the players are going over your values. If players are going just a little bit over your values, you have to strike early and get a high-value player. Otherwise, otherwise, you won't be competitive because you won't be – there's going to be too many people fishing for discounts in the middle. But when everybody's going over your value at the top, you take the auction temperature, you say, hot, oh, I know there's going to be values in the middle. I just wait. You scoop up all the bargains. That's generally what you do. You got to take the auction temperature early, and that tells you where to time when you're going to spend. Did you have the hammer at the end of the at the end of the auction, or were you you know waiting for it to come back to you? No, I was actually money even uh, uh, the rest of the the rest of it. I, I finished pretty much with everybody. Um, I, I I my last pick was a dollar. I had a a four dollar pick. Um, I I didn't I didn't have the hammer or not have the hammer. It just went pretty. You know, pr- pretty standard. And I finished somewhere in the middle of the pack. Okay, so that I think I think the draft overall. If you had to give yourself a grade, what do you think you'd give yourself for this for the for the labor mixed auction? What grade do you think you'd give yourself? In, in uh, the, you know, ignore the injury stuff. What do you think you give yourself as a grade? Yeah, ignoring the injury stuff, I thought it was an A. I'm not gonna say A plus, but I thought it was an A. I got a lot of excess value. Uh, with the injury stuff, it looks like a C, uh, but you know, the the uh, the uh, baseball gods are against me for labor at least. That's true. Certainly can't control when the injuries happen. So injuries like that. Let's talk about uh, an auction that we were all in. GDD, the Gotham Diamond District. Again, uh, this is a very similar to NFBC uh, format, other than uh, except that there is tra- there is trading. Is that right, Steve? That's correct. Okay, so there is trading. There's no IL. There's only one lineup per week, whereas NFBC, you can switch hitters twice a week. But otherwise, the same, you know, f- standard 15 team, 5 by 5 uh, I did it together with Derek Cardi, so some of my strategy was joint with him. We're both value drafters, so that's why we draft well together. We were just picking values somewhere between his numbers and my numbers, right? We just come up with composite numbers for everybody, which we did. We went over players we like and didn't like, and, you know, you can pick to that. Um, you guys all had separate teams. So let's go through general strategy of what you were trying to accomplish, starting with Steve. Yes, in the auction, you know, my strategy is the same as I mentioned earlier. I like to get uh, up front in the um Say first tier, this is a tier that I really targeted. It's like that second tier of outfielders, 20 to $28 to get two or three of those outfielders because I felt like they had a nice blend of, again, power and speed bats. Uh, and I did pull that off uh, with Luis Robert or Robert, Adelise Garcia, and Teoscar Hernandez. And I was pleased there. Um, and I like to get another power bat to complement that. And then you know, balance it out on, on the back end lower dollars with some speed guys. And uh, Christopher Morell, I thought was nice uh, at a dollar there. Um, and the strategy on the pitching side, uh, again, similar to 
uh, the snake draft where I wanted to get two at least second tier aces, soft aces. And I did that with Woodruff and Castillo and then uh, an anchor closer. And I got Iglesias there at $22 uh, and complimented him with Scott Barlow at eight, which I really liked because I think, uh, you know, Chapman's done. I think he, he can't find the plate. He's fried. So I feel like he's going to get more uh, more saves than expected. So I'm trying to target, again, you know, that 65, 60 to 65 saves with the draft. So, um, yeah, that, that was my t- my uh, strategy overall. Ruvain, um, anything, any points in yours? I mean, you, you have a similar strategy to me in general. Yes, I did. But I also planned my strategy around who was in the league. I knew Steve. I knew how he drafted because we were in our NFBC auction last year. So I knew he liked taking some of the middle guys just like we did because he was taking a lot of the guys from us last year. Ariel, I, I definitely know how you know you like the draft. So I wanted to try to be a little bit different in that I wanted to spend a little bit more on the top hitter. And I wanted to make sure I got one of those aces because as the auction went on, those aces got more and more expensive. So when I saw a pitcher go only one dollar over my value and I got Verlander for 30 instead of what I had him for 29 I said I'm going to jump on that because I saw Ariel you were chasing the starting pitchers and you kept getting shut out of the starting pitchers over and over again you end up getting an ace or a 1A but you looks like you were chasing a lot during the course of the draft so I wanted to get that one ace which I did I got Verlander and I got a hitter I, I wanted to get a big hitter also and then I just said you know what let me sit back get one closer and then let the let all the values come to me because I had the hammer. I wanted the hammer at the end, and I got it, and I got all the good values later on. Yeah, so for me, again, I was drafting with Derek Hardy, and, you know, we have to meld styles a little bit. Derek is more of a, what's the, what's the number on the guy? I'm going to bid up to a certain number. Um, and so we basically set numbers for top pitchers that we wouldn't go over. Uh, and we thought because the room, you know, usually is hot in this draft that we'd probably get, instead of one ace, we'd probably get two 1A pitchers. So that was what we planned for, but we were prepared to go up to a certain price for certain starters. We wanted a wide distribution in hitter values because we want to be able to play at every tier and get the value at every single tier. Um, and the <laughs> we, we the bat loves Alec Bohm. <laughs> so I sort, we sort of knew we were, we were going to get Alec Bohm just because the bat has a very big price on him. Uh, that was the that was the three points of strategy, uh, and everything else, of course, that we've said before applies. I want to talk a little bit about nomination strategy, just to you know interject a couple of different points, uh, uh, you know, in our discussion here. So um, for me, I I saw usually when I when I nominate a player, most of the time it's actually players that I would like to buy because I want the information on whether I can get a discount now. But the room was so hot. I knew it would be because it usually is. Prices were just going off the wall. So we were just throwing names out that we had no interest in. I mean, we threw out like Volpe like early. I don't know, our value sheet had him at like minus two. So we're like, all right, let's just throw Volpe, <laughs> see how high it goes. And it did. Uh, the only uh, nomination that we really wanted to do, our second nomination was Ryan Helsley. We wanted to, we didn't want to nominate a top closer. We didn't want closers to come out before we nominated because we thought that the first closer out would have the best price. We brought him out, Ryan Helsley, we got him for 19 and I actually that was one of the better top closer prices. So that strategy worked. And then most of the way, it was pretty much nominating guys we didn't want because it was hot. When the, it cooled off in the auction, we started nominating players that we did want. Always nominate players that you don't want in a hot spot, in a hot temperature auction, cold when you think you can get them. Of course, if you have too much money, 
then you need to start nominating players you want because you need to buy players. If you don't have enough money or if you just spent big purchases, get money off the board, nominate players you don't want in general is the general advice. Steve, anything to add about nomination strategy? Do you have any points that you want to touch on? Well, I think uh, rule number one for me is to not have a pattern. You know, and so just be very creative with your nominating and definitely get money off the table first. That's that's, you know, the age old rule. Um, I did. I do really love how you describe the hot spots, because, you know, if those tiers of players you, you're targeting a player or two in that that bunch, if that bunch gets tighter and there's less and less players at the tier, you know that that they're just going to get inflated those those dollar values. So I try to nominate a player like an Adelise Garcia I want early just to see if I can get him. But I, I see it with the cost is, you know, if the cost, the value is not there, I, I mark that down. I say, okay, what's the inflation of these players? And uh, you're right. The, uh, that this auction is a highly competitive league and competitive auction, and it does tend to run hot up front. So um, sometimes you have to decide, do you want to spend that extra dollar or not? But um, from a, from a strat strategic sense, there's nothing else I really have. I just I try to nominate players to to force create hot spots like you described. Um, other than that, I think it's uh, you know mix it up and be creative. Ruvain, what was your best buy or buys of the auction here? My best buys. I have a I have a few of them because I just scooped up all the outfielders, all the middle infielders toward the end. I got Nico Horner for ten. I got Jeff McNeil for six. I got Whit Merrifield for nine. I literally waited for all these values to come to me. I got Kettle Marte for six. The only the only thing that I was a little bit concerned, I got a, a a value on JD Martinez. I only got him for nine bucks, which is great, but he clogs up your DH. That's the only thing I'm concerned about is clogging up the DH at that point. Um, but I think I I just waited. I had that hammer at the end and if we had a break and after the break i think i picked like seven or eight i i got seven or eight players in a row just because i had the most money and that's exactly what i want that's my that was my plan my plan was just to wait it out wait it out wait it out it's not exactly stars and scrubs because i was getting so many values that my value of the overall team went up uh and what about you steve uh any any regrets maybe or any really good buys well the regret I definitely had was going that extra dollar on Luis Castillo. I got him for 28 and I had him at 26 and I won't say who, but an arch nemesis bucked me up. He put dollar up and this is an online auction. So the dynamics there are different and you're staring at that dollar. And I'm like, I can't let this guy who's beat me in the past uh, get, get the pitcher. Um, so I went another dollar, and next thing you know, my $26 value pitcher, I paid 28 And a dollar may not seem like a lot, but next thing you know, it's $2, and you're 10% above value, which adds up. Uh, so that was my one regret. Yeah, I'll, we will talk a little bit about live versus online uh, when we talk about the NFBC live. But uh, just for me, my best buys, um, I thought Musgrove at 14 was a nice price. I got Patrick Sandoval for Yovaldi at 3 Nice, cheap, good volume, good strikeouts. TJ Friedel uh, sniped Justin Mason, who was eyeing that player the whole time, and I knew he was, and I knew he ran out of money, and I was sort of happy to get him. Uh, and $2 Travis Darno, we threw him out there, and crickets were like, did 
I, I thought first there was like a glitch in the software. Sometimes, you know, you, you, online you, you spend and nobody buys, and, and, and then all of a sudden everyone complains in the chat. Oh, uh, no, we were trying to buy him. I thought maybe that would happen, but nobody did. We won him for two. Uh, regrets, uh, I think we spent a lot of money on Jake Cronenworth, $9. Javier Baez for 9 I mean, those were okay, but I think we could have gotten better bargains. Uh, I think maybe maybe Derek liked him more than me, uh, especially on Cronenworth. But, all right, you know, this happens. Um, did you, Steve, have any specific reserve round strategy? We didn't talk about that at all. But in a lot of these um, a lot of these leagues, the, in the auctions, you first have an auction part, and then you get to take reserve rounds in a snake format. Um, you know, you, you fill up all your active slots and then reserve for anything else. Did you have a distinct reserve round strategy? Really two things. It's one filling in needs, like backfilling what I didn't get out of the auction. And then the second thing is upside. So with with that, I needed. I felt like I needed speed. Um, I was lacking in speed after the auction, so I t t took uh, Bubba Thompson as one of my reserve picks and then went a bit of upside with uh, Spencer Steer and Derek Hall. Any any for you, Uvain, uh, any uh, specific reserve round strategy? Yeah, I wanted to get make sure I had a backup at every position because you never know. People get hurt all the time, as we already see. And I wanted to get more outfielders because I remember last couple of years, the, when you go on the waiver wire for outfielders, especially in a 15-team league, it is not that really much you want out there. So I actually picked up like a Jose Siri, who's would be a, who he's called a starter right now. And I also drafted Margot before earlier. So I actually have the backup for Margot in case he gets hurt and who he's gotten hurt before. And I saw some upside in Trent Grisham because no one took him. So I took him and I saw upside with, I got Gratterall, I got Gallegos and I got Kluber all late. And I, and I think they help back up my team because a lot of the time me and you, Ariel, we were going at each other with bids and that raised a lot of the prices for a lot of the players and i missed out on a lot of those guys that i wanted well you you raised my prices too so thanks um <laughs> yeah i'll tell you in the reserve round ruvain you took uh jose siri from me and gratterall it's a nice start on gratterall those are two that you plucked right out of my queue yeah we got You're david welcome. peterson the our first choice uh i thought that was good uh gavin stone for up uh, for upside gavin stone potential candidate to be Yes, you're Spencer Strider. Take a look at him. Um, and then, yeah, it's just need. We got Randall Grechuk for value. It's either value or need. You know, Grechuk was very high on our value, so we took him. And uh, Hunter Dozier covered two positions that we needed. So, you know, it's good to have these multi-positional eligible guys uh, in deep leagues because, then you know, somebody gets hurt, you don't have to go to the waiver wire. Uh, so multi-position is a thing I do look for. Uh, NFBC, we all were in, Ruvain with me and Steve separate, we were in the NFBC auction live from New York, the very first live auction of the year, which Ruvain and I have been doing for like the past seven years or so. Uh, this year it was in a venue, uh, Dave & Buster's in the city. Uh, d did you like that venue, uh, um, Steve? It was, it was okay. And, you know, hats off to, to the guys at NFBC, Greg Ambrosius and Tom Kucinich for for doing that. Um, I thought it was a fun setting and for, for me and Ruvain, we had a good seat because we were right next to the projector and we had a lot of room to sit. Um, but I can for some of the others, I don't, I don't know how good it was. Did you enjoy uh, uh, the, the room? Well, I'll tell you, the room was fine, right? It was a little noisy in the, the venue itself. Um, so, you know, maybe slightly distracting. The one thing I didn't like, and I'll tell this about any auction, rule of thumb, because we set up our live auctions. We'll be back in live auctions for GDD next year. 
I promise, Ariel. But when you do a live setting, it needs to be a U uh, plan, right? So that meaning that the center's open and the auctioneer's in the center. So everyone can see the auctioneer. He could see everyone. No one's back is to the auctioneer. That's like the golden rule of uh, an auction, live auction setup in person. And um, they didn't have that. They, because of the room, they just had rows of tables. So I was sitting on the inside of the table. I got there later than most everyone else. And unfortunately, you know, my back was to a lot of the players. I can see them and I, uh, my back was somewhat turned to the auctioneer. I had to turn every time. So I feel like you're disadvantaged when your back's to the auctioneer. Yeah, agree, agree. Uh, but also, I, the general strategy, I mean, I'm assuming for all of us, it was pretty similar to GDD that we talked about. The one thing, though, I'll add that Ruven and I did is we really said no risk. First of all, it's a higher money league. It's $1,500 league. Um, and we, we really said, like, we're not buying DeGrum. We're not buying Radon. We're not buying Andrew Heaney, even, you know, even though it's lower value. Just forget risk. We need to keep our, our bench clear of injury guys just as much as you can. Stay away from risk. Obviously, if there's some value, you you know, an offer you can't refuse, you got to take it. Uh, but in general, we, we did that. Anything to add, Steve, or it's pretty much a similar strategy? Well, definitely similar, right? I definitely, first thing I do is I, I mitigate risk just like you do, and uh, especially in a league like this. Um, but, you know, it was, and I don't go stars and scrubs typically, but this, if any league... Because, like you said, it's a high-stakes league, people tend to be conservative. And there were the, the biggest dollar values were with your studs, with the stars, uh, Aaron Judge, all from top to bottom. And you guys got great value. There were some really uh, impressive discounts that you guys were able to pull off. I love what you guys did in your team. Uh, and you can go through those. But that's I think that's a one thing that separated this draft from GGD. It was, it was not a hot room, right? It was very cool even keel and conservative. And so there were values to be had uh, early on in the draft. Yeah, I'll agree with that. And again, it comes from knowing when you have to strike. Because it was not ridiculously hot, you have to strike. We got Spencer Strider at 29. I usually don't do that type of thing, but I thought Strider was the best value from the bunch. There was players going 20. I mean, Gaussman went for 26. Woodruff went for 29. Castillo, 27. All right, for a little more, Strider at 29, I thought was a pretty good deal. Uh, but And we spent the money. Freddie Freeman, 33. It wasn't 37. It was 33. When you have others going for 40 and you have what we think is a f first rounder for 33, you strike. And we got plenty of middle values. George Springer at 18. Jake McCarthy at 17 for speed. Um, you know, that, that, that type of thing uh, along the way. Anthony Rizzo at 8. Telez at 12, Nico Horner at 13, just, you know, $3 a bargain here, $3 a bargain here. You add it up, it's going to be about $50, $60 a bargain throughout your whole draft. Anything to add, Ruvain? Yeah, and I've never owned so many Houston Astros or former Houston Astros on my teams ever before. This is the first year I remember having uh, George, George Springer. We drafted Jose Altuve again in this league. So we have some injury uh, risk that we didn't intend to, but it happened that way. Um, and we happened to fall into getting, I didn't think we were going to get him, but Salvador Perez. We got Salvador Perez for 18, which I thought was a very good value based on the way the way the values were going. And when people stopped bidding on these players, we're, we're wondering, do we know something or that they don't know or are they, are they injured or something? And if you look at our outfield, what we did for our outfield is, is basically what we've done before. Our highest paid outfielder was $18. 
We paid Middle 18, McCarthy for 17, Nimmel for 7, Mitch Hanniger for upside at 3, Grichuk for just value at 2. And all those middle guys, I mean, I, I, those are values that you can't turn down. And again, if you add them all together, they turn out to a lot of value. Yep, and we got Freeman as the anchor, so it's not like we just spent middle. We also got the value up top. I do want to talk about one thing that was very prominent, Steve, um, saves. And I I knew because, you know, Edwin Diaz was, was, was off the table that saves would be pushed up a little bit more, but it was crazy. $25 for Class A. I think there was about six uh, – Rachel Iglesias for 22 Romano for 21 I believe there was Presley for twenty one. I believe there was about six closers who went over twenty dollars. I've never seen that before in my life. And as a value guy, I'm like, I can't do it. I can't spend seven dollars over what a guy is worth. I just never will earn that that profit. And there's got to be some either cheap closers later, or at some point you say just punt. I mean, I, I in the middle of the draft, I was saying to Ruvain, should we just punt at this point because these prices are insane. And I said no. I said you no. Said no. You, don't, you, you can't in, in a league like this. You can't punt this early, especially there are so many still. There's so many names still on the board that you can get at value. Yeah, and there's an overall component. So we ended up settling on an $18 Felix Batista, who, believe it or not, was absolutely the best bargain of the lot. Um, so we didn't go go empty. But I don't know if if Batista went over 20, I might have said just let's go cheap, 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 because that I just can't pay over seven dollars. What did you think of uh, of that? What, what was your thoughts as the draft was unfolding, Steve? As far as with closers, since there is the overall, as you mentioned, I wanted the anchor, and that's been consistent uh, with the you know how I'm going into these drafts. So the twenty two dollars Iglesias I got, I was happy with. I was, uh, there's a bit of a you know an increase, like two dollar increase on there, but you know it's uh, there's limited uh, it's inflation because you know there's uh, not much supply and there's a ton of demand for that especially for an overall um I, and i'd rather pay the extra dollar or two on a proven commodity you know a proven stud um like the top closers versus some of the back-end closers are really getting inflated um david bednar right he went for a, a, like 18 dollars or something yeah 18 um, crazy that's you know uh, and some of the, the the lesser uh less sure closers or shared or committees, they were going for a top dollar. So I'd rather, if I want to spend a few more dollars, a dollar or two more, I'd rather do it at the top. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just thought the prices were getting ridiculous. Um, so Batista to me was a $3 overpay rather than a $7 overpay. Again, as I preach, if, as long as you have, uh, as long as you're paying a smaller market premium than everybody else, you're okay to a point. When you're paying over $5 market premium, though, there's no way you can make up that profit later on. Um, you know, at some point, you, you got to decide not, not to do it. Uh, but thankfully, we had Batista there. Um, any, any regrets, uh, any other regrets uh, to talk about, Steve, uh, on the team that you did here? Actually, with this team, no, no regrets. I really liked uh, what I did. I, I thought I had a lot of uh, upside and a lot of good value in this draft. So I was very pleased. And you took Nestor Cortez from us. I saw that. You know, I, you know, this is key for me too. I feel like in in the, um, especially in the overall, the, people underestimate the importance of ratios. So I really like to get that whip down, right? Control that whip. And if your whip's low, your ERA is going to be low. And Cortez is uh, is great for adding uh, value on the whip side, whip category. 
I actually had one one sort of regret during the draft, and I spoke to you about this, Ariel. We had Freddie Freeman. We got Rowdy Telev. So we had a first baseman and a corner. And then Rizzo came up, and he, we got him at a, what we thought was a great value at $8. But he had to go into our utility, which sort of limited us as to who we can nominate the rest of the way, who we could pick up the rest of the way. So a little, I, I mean, I love the value, but do you think it was the right thing to clog up your utility with a third first baseman just because the value was there? Yeah, so let me talk about this for, for just a bit. The name of the game is buying the value, and when you're in the middle end, in the, more towards the end of the auction, I'd say, and you have a certain dollar's amount left, you have to spend it on some people, and there's going to be bargains. The question is, can you get the biggest bargains? You know, you want to get as big. If you have got two players and $5 left, you want to split it and get a $3 guy's worth eight and a $2 guy's worth six, and combine for, for a nice big bargain. When you have an Anthony Rizzo, and we got him for eight, and our value saves were thirteen, fourteen dollars. The question is, can you get a six dollar bargain somewhere else in the draft later on? Probably not. Or I don't think you can do better than that. Like with that slot, I don't think you can get better than about a six dollar bargain. So you know, you have to make that determination. I know it blocks. I know it limits us in terms of nominating, but. You can't turn down a $6 bargain at, at, at that level. $8 worth 14 it's hard to get a bigger return on investment. So the calculation was, let's do it. And by the way, we also liked that profile. The power actually balanced our profile that we had up until then. So good fit for, for the categories. Bargain was just insane. At some point, you got to say, right? And, and, you know, if a guy is a $2 bargain – you can't take them but when you're later in the auction because there's going to be a better $4 bargain, right? There's always You just have to calculate what's the best number bargain you're going to get, and if you spot that dollar amount, that's what you take. it. That's why a lot of my, my decisions later in an auction are snap decisions. I know the dollar bargain I'm looking for for a slot. I get it. I bid up to that number, and then if it goes over, I'll find somebody who has a bigger, bigger bargain and vice versa. Do you agree with that, Steve? I do. I, that's a great point. And, and, you know, this draft specifically, this auction, because, you know, it was, again, the the opposite of GDD. It was not a hot room. All the top players, they were going for 3 to $4 discount. And I'm talking about Aaron Judge, Jose Ramirez, uh, Marcus Semien. Uh, I got Nolan Arenado for a 3 to $4 discount. All those guys were going for uh, a significant discount. So like I said, over a 10% discount. So that means that the back end of the auction is going to be inflated, right? So the dollars have to go somewhere. So instead of getting deals at the back end, people are spending, I'm looking at values here, Taylor Ward going uh, $2 over. So that's middle of draft. But if you go to the back end of it, you got guys like, you know, Jared Kellenick going for $4 over value. Um, let's see, Max Muncy, that's middle of draft, back end of the draft. I'm getting down. I'm going through the AVs. Seth Brown, Ben No bargains. No bargains. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's wild. If you look at it, if you go through the AV in the back end, it's wild. Like I yeah. said, Kalenic was four. Naylor, $3 over. Rendon, $2 over. I would not go for Anthony Rendon for $6 at this stage in his career. And, um, and they had to because know. they had to use their money. So you end up they because they didn't spend early enough or because they didn't get bargains in the middle, they are overspending late. And and again, that reinforces why Rizzo, that bargain really made sense. And that reinforced what you said earlier that you did need to get a top 
top player in this draft because there was no super bargain super late. So, you know, exactly. it, it, you, all, you always have to take the temperature of the auction. That will tell you where the bargains are. You knew right away, oh, there's good values at the top. There's not going to be great values late, late. So if you don't, you're going to have too much money, and you're going to be overpaying for players at the bottom. Uh, last draft that we'll cover, Tout Wars head-to-head, a part of Tout Wars weekend at the Edison Hotel in New York. I sat through pretty much every single auction. Steve, you were there for, for a couple of them with me also. Uh, wh- right. what, did you, what did you gather by sitting? Because I know you, you, as well as me, like to sit through them. What, what do you gather? Do you gather information, enjoy the camaraderie? Like, what, what do you take out of it? Well, I do have a lot of friends who do the draft, so I, I really enjoy the community and the camaraderie. But, you know, you can learn. You see what players certain uh, experts or touts are are targeting, and uh, everybody's got different techniques in the auction. So I just love the – and every auction is different, right? The dynamic of the auction, who's inflated, where are the values – um, it's it's fun. It's it's great to go along. And you had your sheets there with you with the, uh, your dollar values. And I love comparing the ATC dollar values with uh, with the the prices the players actually went for. Uh, oh that yeah, was, uh, quite interesting. Yeah, like everybody who sat next to me was just kept looking at my uh, at my paper. You know, just hey, let's let's see what ATC compares to everybody else. And you know, guy goes up for bid. Oh, what does it say now? So it was kind of a like a nice scene in the back uh, that you and I were a part of. And was your strategy any different? Because this is a twelve-team, twelve-team uh, mixed auction auction with head-to-head points with playoffs. So how did your your strategy change when um, when you compare this type of auction to let's say the NFPC fifteen-team league? Oh yeah, so this is a totally different strategy here. Um, now, I, I this is a this is an expert league. It's Tout Wars. There were a lot of new players in the league. I think five. Um, now they've never. It, it's an advantage to be in a league already. You know the dynamic. You know what plays. These players haven't been in a league, so maybe they didn't know exactly what would play. Um, and one of my strengths is valuing players. So because it's a different format, I knew there was going to be some more people that valued players closer to the roto style. Um, in a points league, um, first of all, the st- stolen bases don't play as much. Pitching plays a lot more, especially pitchers who give innings. Innings are more important, because if you have a blow-up outing, you know, your ERA is not trashed forever. If you pitch seven innings, you're getting 21 points just for pitching, however good or bad you do. Um, so innings, 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 innings plays. And the values are muted. The top players I calculated were worth like $32, you know, and it didn't go all, you know, it pretty much steady through the middle. Um, players were more similar to each other. So when players are going for $40, $44 for Julio and for 43 for Acuna, like they would in a Roto, that's not just five, four or $5 of excess va- of value that they're over. That's like 10 to $15 per player. When you, when you have, and I knew this would happen because it happened every year the last couple of years. Um, when you have players going for $15 over and everybody's buying that, that just tells you that you should not buy any player on offense for more than like 16, 18 bucks because um, <laughs> you're just throwing out money. You're going to get the entire middle, scoop up the entire middle. Uh, and that was the general tenant. I did have to watch out for one specific owner, Frank Stample, who won this back to back, who has the same strategy as me, values the same ways, 
we're going to be bidding on against each other the whole time. Now, we didn't actually do that this time. It wasn't that much of a battle between me and him as in prior years, which actually helped my cause here, but I had to look out for him. Uh, but so that's the general strategy there. The couple specific things I want to add to what I did was catchers, though, were more market value driven. It was pretty much more accurate. So the idea is I'm just same thing as I said at the top of the show. I'm just gonna not pay on hitters in the middle other than catchers. So I just bought two catchers. My my I bought uh I didn't get Riamuto. I got Will Smith at twenty one, Salvador Perez at seventeen. So, you know, I bought spent there and then my next highest hitter was a fifteen dollar Cedric Mullins. But Brian Reynolds at thirteen, Santander at nine, Castellanos for six Dansby Swanson for nine is a $20 player here. I'm getting excess, excess, excess value on everybody in the middle. And I paid up for pitching. I spent, I got Robbie Ray for 20, Gaussman for 22, Castillo for 24, Logan Gilbert for 12. Good prices, but I wanted to get quantity in pitching because quantity helps. Uh, and I paid up for a top closer. I got Emmanuel Classe for 19. So it was pinch the closers and catchers, quantity in the pitching, and just bargain, 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 bargain in the hitting. And I pretty much executed what what I thought. Now, we've talked about all these auctions so far that we all did. Steve, I'm going to start with you first with this question. What was your hitter-pitcher split for the for your budget pre-draft? Was it any different this year as opposed to prior years? It depends on the format. You know, and, and an overall, again, I'm going to lean a little bit more pitcher-heavy, like a $160 for hitting, $100 split for pitching. Uh, but, you know, I, I originally was... You know, years ago, 180 for hitting, $80 for pitching, and that was standard. And I've uh, that's evolved over time to be more, I'd say, uh, 150 hitting and $90 pitching. That's typically my target um, as regard to split. I'm not sure percentage wise, but is that like a 65% split? 65-35. And Ariel, what did you do differently in this in this in the tout league when it's a 12 team compared to a 15 league? Did you do any differently? Well, 15 to 12 wasn't much uh, of a difference. Uh, it was more the format. This was 55 hitting, 55% hitting, 45% pitching uh, because of the format and the rules. Again, this is this is not a categories league. You don't need any stolen bases. You don't actually need to have a correct hitter pitcher split. But again, as I always tell people, your value sheets should reflect whatever's in the room. Uh, I calculated the room would be about 60-40. Uh, hitters, pitchers, so my values reflected that. I chose to buy more pitching, but your value should always be what you think is reflected in the room. Uh, NFBC is something like around 61%, 39% um, uh, pitching in the uh, in the auctions. I do want to say one more thing that I did in, in the Tout Wars. Um, I put up Jose Altuve, uh, and I bought him for $8. Now, Jose Altuve, full speed, is $22 player, at least, $25 player maybe. Um <laughs> In this, this first of all, eight is a pretty good discount for missing two months out of six. But besides which, this is a playoff format. Um, I get the full value of Jose Altuve in the playoffs. As long as I make the playoffs, I now have an extra $10, $15 of excess value by rostering Altuve that I got for next to nothing. Um, and, you know, and I got so many discounts that I'll take an $8 Altuve, put him on the bench, so... I don't know. I'll be a little bit light for the first couple of weeks, but then I got a playoff Altuve. So that was one thing I, I definitely thought to do. Um, Frank Stample did that with Carlos Rodon. He bought him. Uh, he bought somebody else also, I know. I'm trying to think. He bought um, Joe Musgrove. 
you know, same type of thing that, all right, you know, he won't start the first week or so, but now he's got the whole value. He also bought Fernando Tatis Jr. Yeah. So because he bought, you know, a little bit of the risk, he said, you know what, I'm throwing the first two weeks anyways. Let's just get Tatis because now I got Tatis for the playoffs. So uh, he employed a similar strategy, and I think that was effective. And is there a general rule that we should go by for players who are injured that you t to a certain amount of discount we should go for? I mean, you know, in general, you're pricing it, you know, with the, the lower playing time, and then you're adding uh, replacement-level stats. That's really how you price it. So, you know, if a guy is going to miss half a year and you're a $20 player, it's going to amount to something like, you know, 10 plus 2, something around like a $12 player. Um, of course, there's, you know, it depends on the format. If you're in the NFBC, then you have to – there's no IL, so he's worth a lot less. And with his IL, that's roughly what he's worth. In a playoff format – He's going to be worth more than that because now you also get him for the playoffs. So add a couple dollars to that. So, Ariel, for, with Altuve, so how much time are they saying he's going to miss now with the broken hand? I'm going to say I – mean, I actually, Ruvain should be the one that's, to answer this that, one. That's, that's actually part of my injury update that's actually coming okay, up. Okay, I'm sorry um, to, sorry to uh, no, jump ahead, but it, no, the question I have – Real quick, here's a question I have for you, Ariel. Then, if you have, just say in general, whatever, the, regardless of what the injury is, if they say it's a six to eight week, usually you have a two week window there, six to eight week window for your projections, what do you take for the reduction then? Do you split the difference or? Um, I mean, I'll usually take about seven to eight. I'll usually look at what other projections are doing and I'll, you know, typically mimic that if i have a strong feeling one way or the other or ruvain tells me something i'll you know lean more toward that side i'm just going to mention jose Altuve first he's he had a fractured thumb he's going to have surgery they're actually waiting for the swelling to go down they don't know how long he's going to be out yet they, they already said eight to ten weeks but you have to wait and see what type of surgery is done first before you can actually say that it may be six to eight it may be eight to ten we don't know yet until he actually has the surgery Okay, that's interesting. And for us, we've have a lot of shares of Altuve. I took him at, even after he got injured, so I'm loaded with Altuve. So I hope he goes really quickly. The one topic we didn't really address so far was online versus live, and I think online is so much better. So Steve, I I preach on the show that I sort of hypnotize the audience, or I use my voice to get buys and to control the room. Did did you find that to be true? I mean, I I think. There's a lot you can do live. So I agree, agree with you that live is definitely the preferred in person is the preferred uh, way to go. It's just it's a different dynamic. You get to hear and see people and, and see if anyone has any tells. Right. They're doing the same thing over and over. Repetitive um, behavior. And I do like you. You do a great job of throwing people off with uh, your different cadence and volume of uh, your throws and, uh, you know, bids. Yeah, I mean, I try to do it so that you actually don't know if I want a player or not, or whether I'm just price enforcing. And I'm guessing that you you kept guessing. <laughs> I try to guess right, but I I typically I do the opposite. I just try to say uh, slow and steady, just steady Eddie, so that uh, you know they can't tell. It's just uh, as emotionless as possible, and uh, see how that goes. You know, there's no tell, uh, disinterest almost, if you will, in, in everything. <laughs> I try to put fun in the room, you know? Hey, well, that, that's what I was going to say. You, a lot of times when you when you say a bit out loud, you can hear some chuckles in there in the way, just the way you're, you're, you're saying it out loud. And sometimes that can just throw the people off right there because if, if you're trying to concentrate 
and all of a sudden something silly happens or you hear a silly voice or something like that, it can throw someone off and it, it, it lets you control the room a little bit better. Yeah. You can be in a live auction with Ariel do it because it's quite entertaining and uh, yep. it's just a great experience. It's a lot of fun. There you go. Yeah, I got to say our, our the labor auction we were in was so much fun and it, you had a lot of fun guys in there. Uh, Nick Pollock was there, Ronis, Gray Albright making jokes. Uh, Ryan Hallam was fun. Just you know, you have a lot of fun guys. It's entertaining, and and then people were copying my cadences. You know, four, <laughs> seven. You know, uh, so it was it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, but I will say though, the online what I really don't like about it is two things. One, that plus button is so frustrating because number one, you know, you you can't bid what you want because it's locking you out, and then when you do bid. You're actually not bidding the right number because then you're going over what you want. And somebody who's outbidding you, he's also bidding somebody a, a, a dollar over. Like nobody's ever bidding what they want. Very frustrating. And the second thing is, you know, when you're hearing bids live, you don't have to look. You hear it. You hear the player's name. You're looking at your own sheets or whatever you're doing. When you're doing online, you look at your own sheets. You also have to look at the screen and use your mouse and click. You, you, you have to do two things at once. You can't go back to your numbers and do the on and do the clicking. There's there's more too many things to do with online. I, I don't like it. Plus one button is a significant risk. I mean, if somebody if you're looking at a player who's like twenty four dollar player and he's at twenty and you say plus one at twenty one, all of a sudden somebody types in twenty six and you don't see that you just plus one it and it's too quick to see. All of a sudden you're at twenty seven, twenty eight without even intentionally or meaning to do that. So quite frustrating. Yeah, so definitely we recommend doing live auctions. Okay, Ruvain, injury report, and there, there's some big names here. Uh, please get everyone to up to speed. Yeah, so I already mentioned about Jose Altuve. Juan Moncada, who was playing in the World Baseball Classic, actually had a collision with one of the outfielders, and he's still dealing with a bruised rib but did not suffer a concussion. They still think he should be ready for opening day, so don't worry about that too much yet. Andres Munoz, who who's, we actually have a lot of shares of this year, has not yet pitched in the Cactus League, but he did already pitch last week in a in a B game against the Padres, so he did, he did pitch. He's actually re reported no setbacks from his surgically repaired ankle, so hopefully he'll be okay for opening day, if not very soon, right after. Alex Kirilov will not be ready for opening day. He's still recovering from that wrist surgery. Some names to think about. Joey Gallo may get more playing time. Jose Miranda, Donovan Solano, they can all play first base, so those are guys to watch for. Michael Soroka is set to make his Grapefruit, Grapefruit League debut tomorrow, which is today's Tuesday. It's, he's making his debut on Wednesday. He, it'll be a question whether he'll be ready to start for the season, but you never know. It may send him down for you know Triple A just to get a, you know, his innings up, but we'll see about that. Brandon Nimmo, who we have a lot of shares of also, um, sprained his knee and ankle sliding into second base. Um, he was tested today, and supposedly everything went well, and he believes that he will be ready for opening day. So that's a good sign for all Brandon Nimmo owners. Jorge Polanco may begin the season on the IL because he's feeling some quote-unquote normal soreness after taking a you know batting practice recently uh, he's looked good so far but it's very he's not gonna he's gonna start on the il so if you have him look for your initial fab to try to get another middle infielder just to be on the safe side harrison bader is doing better than anticipated that, that's said by aaron boone so i don't know how much we you know you can take for that um he still probably missed about six weeks so if you have an il keep him there um and if you're still drafting in an, an orchestra 
something like that. Still try to take the um, the value on him. We mentioned Jordan Alvarez. He could play in a Grapefruit League next week. So he, it's looking up for him. I don't know if that's going to affect his value because he may still be behind other players just because of his injury. And another guy on his team, Michael Brentley, is actually behind him. So if you have any thoughts of drafting Michael Brentley, I'd hold off on that. And, of course, the big news, Edwin Diaz had successful surgery to repair his patellar tendon tear. Now, I wanted to speak about this. People were wondering, oh, he went to the World Baseball Classic and got injured that way. He's injured celebrating. No. The patella tendon is one of the strongest, if not the strongest, tendon in the entire human body. If he tore it jumping up and down while after throwing a 100-mile-an-hour pitch using that leg to push off of, that doesn't make any sense. What probably happened was is that there was a tear in the tendon that he didn't know about even after he had an MRI on old testing when he had his new contract. He probably had a tear in it, and it just happened to be that this was the straw that broke the camel's back, and it could have happened anywhere. This is not something that he, he happened because of the World Baseball Classic, so people shouldn't be knocking it for that. Any event, Edwin Diaz says he hopes to pitch at the end of this year, but being a Mets fan, I hope he doesn't because the Mets have him for many years, and you want him to be fully healthy when he returns. So he was a ticking time bomb is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. If it wasn't going to happen there, because he, he got the injury jumping up and down. What's, what's, what is there what more torque going on in the knee? Pitching or jumping up and down celebrating? It, it doesn't make any sense. So there had to be something going on there before, and it just happened to be the, you know, the, just that one motion did it, and that was it. Wow. Very interesting take and very, very sad. I, I was depressed for a couple of days. Oh, man, that's rough for a Mets fan, sure. I feel for you guys and for baseball, too. You know, uh, another injury, Ruvain, did you hear about the Carson Kelly injury? Yes, Carson Kelly has a fractured forearm. He is going to miss at least, I'd say, probably two months. They haven't said how much he's going to miss yet, but he's probably missed about two months. That means it's Gabriel, Gabriel Moreno season in Arizona. Yeah, that value just will shoot up. This week's drafts, you'll see. Do you have any update on Juan Soto? He had the oblique issue. Is is that major or minor? Uh, they haven't said whether it's major or minor yet. They haven't announced that, but he did tweak it, so he may be a little bit behind. He may not even start the season on time. Um, they may be being extra cautious. I mean, he it, it's it's a question. Uh, if it's a mild oblique, he can only miss maybe like two, three weeks, four weeks tops. If they get an MRI and they say it's a moderate oblique strain, then you're looking at six to eight weeks. So just keep an ear out, and he, and when you hear the terms mild and moderate, the difference between mild and moderate is about a month. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be drafting Juan Soto in the first round anymore I, I, for, for this weekend before before you know anything. Do you agree with that, guys? Yeah. I do, and oblique's a tricky thing too, right, Ruvain? I mean, you can say yes. that there's that time period, but then you don't know the impact or implications it'll have for the duration of the season, right? It could be longer. Yes. It, it could it could flare up after even they come back. It may zap some of his power just because of the way the body torques when they swing. So I think uh, they're going to be a little bit extra cautious, although he's going to want to get on the field. This is his contract season. He has He's, he's going there to play for money right now, and he's— it's the two top free agents coming to next year are Shohei Otani and Juan Soto. And Shohei Otani just ended the World Baseball Classic by striking out Mike Trout. You know what his value is going to be. But Juan Soto is coming off of a damn Did that really year just happened, off... by the way? Yeah, that was how yes, it ended? That really, that, that really it just happened. It just came happened. up yes. on my phone. Wow. Yes. Yes. Wow. That really, to, to end the game after Mookie Betts grounded into the double play. Um But it, Otani's got that over Trout off... all season. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, maybe that's... 
Maybe that's why he won't come back to the Angels now. I don't know. Maybe he thinks Mike Trout's not that good, right? <laughs> um, but but anyway, um, I his value is going to be based on he had a down year last year. He's coming into the season now injured. I think he better be very careful. Otherwise, his value in the offseason may not be what he wants it to be. If you're an Angels fan, you have Mike Trout and Otani, and your team stinks. I mean, that's... That's that that's horrible management by, by them. How, how do you let the you know two of the best five baseball players in the game at least you know you have both of them and you had Pujols for a while also right? How do, how do you let that and you can't make the playoffs ever? That that's horrific. Yeah, it, it's it's a very bad situation. I mean, could you name their top five starters? Can you name who their closer is going to be? That's their problem. They don't have anyone besides those guys. They're so invested in those guys. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of closer, I put uh, I threw some darts at Jimmy Herget at the end of a few drafts, having the reserve round, uh, and late in both snake drafts. I'm in, so we'll see. I don't I don't believe in Carlos Estevez, and um, and Herget Herget looked good, good, good for ten fifteen saves. It'll be good for ten fifteen saves. And Herget looked good last year, so Estevez should get the first shot. But I mean, you know how reliable. It's not a bad. It's not a bad uh, dart to throw. Uh, I, I like that. Good. Good, good tip, Steve. Uh, and by the way, this was a fantastic show. I mean, I think we, you know, we, we we analyzed our teams, but it was more about giving the strategy and how it played out. And hopefully, the listening audience, hopefully, you guys got some really good nuggets uh, um, as to you know what to do based on what we actually did. Uh, and uh, I mean, I, I think that the three of us have very similar strategies. It's it's not conflicting strategies it's more nuances here more than anything else so thank you so much steve for for coming on the show really appreciate it thank you i really appreciate the invite and i enjoyed the time and i enjoy talking to you guys always about baseball and our auctions and um there'll be many more of that for sure this season yeah anything going on steve uh, are you are you heading to vegas or what's coming up for you no, no, but I do have a, a couple more online drafts, online auctions, uh, which, like we said, we don't enjoy as much as the live ones, but uh, I am not getting out to Vegas. So I'll be online this weekend with two different auction drafts. Ruvain, what about you? What, what are you doing this uh, this week? Well, um, you can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru. I'll continue to tweet out the injury updates as they come fast and furious before the season starts. Now, you have to also remember when people are drafting, a lot of these players don't hit the IL until opening day. So when you're drafting someone, it may be a dead spot on your roster. So just keep that in mind. Um, and you can follow me on Rotoballer. I'll have a weekly article in season discussing all these injuries starting the first week of the season. Yep, I'll be writing for Rotoballer this season as well, as well as Fangraphs. You can see the ATC projections, which will be updated, I believe, Thursday in time for your draft this weekend. Um, and, uh, hey, you can follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. Uh, Ruben and I will be doing, I think we're doing a home league uh, in-person auction that we haven't done also since before COVID. So we're looking forward to doing that. Uh, smaller, 10-team. Last, last draft of the year. Yeah, last draft. 10-team nice. mixed auction limited keepers <laughs> more edwin diaz edwin diaz was one of our keepers but they are letting us get back the money so we lose the bargain of the keeper but at least we get something back for them and don't have to roster him oh boy so overexposed to diaz and, and altuve um i mean do, do you believe in diversifying steve because I, I i don't play in that many leagues that i feel like i need to um do, do you do that no, I tend not to. Maybe on uh, on the pitching side, a couple studs. You know, I may 
try to diversify there just because, you know, pitchers tend to be higher risk uh, from an injury standpoint. But no, I mean, get your guys, believe in your guys, get them. It's all about value, honestly, at the end of the day. So if anything, it's going to be the draft dictating it and where the values fall. So that that may be why I diversify, not not by intent, you know, not intentionally. Spoken by the 2022 auction championship NFBC winner, Steve Cosolino with uh, just a fantastic season from the same uh, division as the same league that we played in. So obviously it was very tough for us to win last year uh, against you. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll finish in second this year and we'll finish in first. We did it again. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) We'll be fun. (laughs) That would be great. All right. Thank you so much to our guest, Steve Cosolino. Hope you enjoy this show. And thanks again for dealing with my little bit of raspy voice uh, as (laughs) – It's tiring doing all these auction lives, and hopefully by opening day, my voice will be pristine. Uh, But thanks again for listening. Hope you got something out of it. And uh, any questions, just shoot them over. Uh, My DMs are open, um, and uh, make use of them uh, as you can. All right, once again, from all of us here at Beat the Shift, have a fantastic rest of your draft auction season, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.